0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. This is episode 59 of the Consumer Podcast on February 3rd, 2022. Thank you again for joining us and for following us on all the podcast platforms. And please do recommend it to friends, uh, family and colleagues um, if you're listening right now and you like the content. We've been going on for a while and we wish to continue to do so. Um, So this week we have a special guest, uh, Gary Leff. He's a frequent travel expert uh, and a chief financial officer for a university research center. We will be talking about ghost flights in europe why are some airlines flying empty um and uh, there's actually a regulatory rule that is uh, the cause of that so that is at the end of this episode also in this episode the conflict in ukraine could impact food prices and green covid passports get earlier expiry dates around europe i'll be talking to my colleague fred Roder about that so let's get started The conflict between Ukraine and Russia could pose problems for food security. Uh, This is Politico writing in its newsletter. It says that the uh, share of overall agri-food imports from Ukraine are not that significant, though. Uh, It's about 4.9% of the EU's total agri-food imports in 2020. However, when you go down into the details, you find that we are reliant uh, um, of Ukraine for certain products. So, for instance, uh, sunflower oil, uh, 88% of the EU's imports come from Ukraine. And sunflower oil, of course, being used quite a lot, uh, not just in individual households, but also in gastronomy uh, restaurants, which are back open in Europe uh, all across the continent. And uh, also 49% of the EU's corn imports from Ukraine as well as rapeseed, uh, which is uh, 41%. But it's not just Ukraine which will be affected if there will be sanctions imposed on Russia. And we also do have a lot of uh, sanctions already uh, of, of previous uh, conflicts, uh, notably the one with, with the Crimean Peninsula, the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. Um, so uh, Russia uh, being the case here, fertilizer imports, very important. It's about It was about 1.12 billion euros in 2020 for fertilizers. Of course, was very important for agriculture. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then Belarus as well. Belarus uh, not uh, directly involved in this conflict between Ukraine and Russia. But, however, because we do have uh, sanctions uh, in, uh, on Belarus uh fertilizers also uh we import those uh from belarus so so this will significantly uh, impact uh, our uh, food uh, agri trade as we continue with this conflict and the question will of course be how exactly is the european union going to navigate that because with all the sanctions regimes and the additional protectionism that we already have in terms of trade how exactly are we going to deal with that um the 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 mix between foreign policy and trade policy is very prominent uh, in the European Union, but of course it does impact consumer prices. Um, in general, it's, uh, it's it's of course impacting Europe less than it, for instance, does the Middle East and Africa, which are considerably more impacted by this conflict. But I think overall, it's important to note that there is a a balance to be struck here. And my personal view has been that um, uh, Magnitsky-type sanctions are are better in terms of targeting specific people rather than impacting uh, consumers. And, of course, producers in the individual countries, because if uh, individual countries are, are, are hit by sanctions, then that that doesn't help um, uh, their, their long-term prospects, their economic prospects, and, of course, the ones of consumers in Europe as well. Uh, countries will eventually, conflict or not, need economic prosperity in, in the future, so uh, free trade remains a very important part of that. So, uh, we'll see how exactly that is going uh, forward. We'll definitely keep an eye on it on uh, this podcast. Next up, some countries are restricting uh, the expiry dates of uh, the green COVID passports. This is specifically when it comes to the, the recovery certificates. How long uh, will, you able, will you be able to have a green pass after you recovered from COVID-19? Countries such as France are doing uh, restrictions on that already. So I talked to my colleague Fred Roder, Managing Director of the Consumer Choice Center and Health Economist by training. Uh, asked him some questions about that and uh, yeah, take it away. All right. So, Fred, uh, countries throughout Europe are now shortening the length of uh, certain green pass rules. So, for instance, recovery certificates are not valid as long. Uh, Some countries are shortening them from six to four months. Um, What is your view on the effect that this will have on people getting vaccinated and the overall health situation that we find ourselves in, especially with Omicron?
1: I was very surprised to uh, read about this, especially Germany cutting the recovery uh, period, as long as the green pass as well shown as has recovered from six to three months. And I think there was even then an exemption for the German parliament where it stayed six months, um, which is a pretty hard sell uh, to the general public. On a scientific base, I understand the changes, um, it looks that immunity uh, towards new strains such as Omicron is uh, less strong as hoped when, especially, the vaccine program was rolled out. Um, I believe some countries even suggest now to have a booster vaccine every 10 weeks. There was some data from Israel suggesting that. And then we really have to ask ourselves you know, on the one hand, we have the severity of COVID going down, the new strains seem to be much less harmful than the initial ones, which is amazing. This is good. This is what everyone was hoping for. And countries are discussing to label COVID as an endemic and a pandemic. I think for, for since three days, uh, everyone actually knows the difference of that, or at least pretends to know it. And um, that is positive. But on the other hand, we still don't get rid of Vaccine passports, countries now want to use mandatory vaccines while the severity of the end- pandemic, or pandemic, however you want to call it, is actually going down. And everyone is getting it right now. I believe close to 2% of all Germans currently have COVID. And um, now we're talking about these preventive measures that haven't helped us much in the past. And now we should also understand to live with COVID as we live with the uh, common flu, which is also not nice and kills many, many people, especially vulnerable every year. And also going back to normal, uh, because currently crossing borders is extremely hard. I've heard it anecdotally from people who've been traveling from outside Europe to Germany in December to see the Christmas markets and while they were vaccinated, the vendors at the Christmas market in Dusseldorf could not read the certificate of the tourist and sent them away and they couldn't buy souvenirs, even though it's all happening outdoors. I mean, that's just ridiculous and shows that these measures come too late and now are too harsh.
0: Yeah, I I saw that Luxembourg, my own country, uh, there was a problem that those who had been vaccinated with Johnson & Johnson and got boosted with Pfizer were not considered boosted in Bavaria, for instance. So what the Luxembourgish government did was just say that they had three doses of Pfizer, basically lying on the certificate in order to get people to be able to go to a Brow house in Bavaria. Now, my question to you is, uh, Denmark is now getting rid of all COVID rules. The UK is sort of trying to roll back. Uh, while Germany and Austria are talking mandatory vaccination, having very draconian measures and high fines. Do you see a place for the European Union to play here to try and get sort of generalized rules uh, for the entire EU, trying to put a cap on what should be done, what is too much, what is too little? Is there a place for the EU or or from the track record of what we've seen from Brussels, uh, does does that make sense to you?
1: I'm not sure if we're going to see that. I'm also not sure if there's a legal basis to do that without every country before signing up to this. I mean, public health has been always and still is uh, um, uh, issue of the member states. So I'm not sure if the EU can do that. I mean, on, on the travel part, the EU has been trying to get back to normality because we were there, we had like the EU certificate and then suddenly countries said, oh, while you're vaccinated, you still need to have a PCR test to enter our country. And I think some countries are starting to scrap that, or many have now, except recently I was surprised to see going from Italy to Austria right now, you need to have a PCR test, even if you are vaccinated. And I think potentially even if you are boosted. I'm not entirely sure because it was so complicated to read the rules that I didn't fully understand them. And I gave up trying to understand them. I'm not sure how an ordinary border guard able to process all of this while trying to uh, also process, I don't know, five passengers a minute, uh, so, or maybe two, but still, it's it's very complex. Uh, There's kind of the, the, the hour of the bureaucrats, and now it's really time to roll back and understand that we have to live with COVID. I mean, while cases have been exploding, the death numbers have been also going down, not just per capita per case, but just in total, and that's that just shows that. We are still trying to fight something that you cannot really fight, and it's also actually not as bad anymore as we think. Otherwise, if we don't get this mentality, Denmark and the UK show, you know, the other alternative is something like New Zealand where I've been reading about the story of a New Zealand journalist who reports from Kabul and she's pregnant and she's not being allowed back to New Zealand because uh, they don't have quarantine space for her because that's very much limited. And she has only a short window where she's able to still travel being pregnant. And her own country doesn't let her in. I mean, this is is not China we're talking about, but a so-called liberal democracy in New Zealand. So these rules are ridiculous and very harmful and we really need to stop doing this. Because if mainstream politics doesn't understand this, we end up with uh, radical fringes to uh, getting popular support just because they opportunistically um, criticize these uh, crazy rules we're having.
0: And last but not least, we have uh, Gary Left talking to us. He's a frequent travel expert uh, from the United States and he's the chief financial officer for University Research Center. Uh, He runs the uh, blog View from the Wing and uh, he had uh, a lot of interesting things to say about ghost flights. You might have seen this on the news. Some airlines are flying empty around uh, Europe and the question is, of course, Uh, Why would they do that? Why not uh, just fill those flights up? Or if you can't uh, fill them up, why just not cancel the flight altogether? There's actually a specific regulatory reason for that. And so we explore that together. So, Gary, thank you for joining us. First of all, um, we in Europe have been talking about ghost flights. And so the the news has been writing about these flights as Lufthansa, as all the major airlines flying around empty. Of course, environmentalists are upset about this, but a lot of politicians are upset about this and have been addressing this. How is this possible? Why are these flights going empty? I know this was already a topic in 2020. So um, can you give us sort of an input into what is exactly happening here? Why are these airlines flying empty?
2: Certainly. So major airports, uh, very common in Europe, very common in Asia. There's a handful of airports in the United States that limit Uh, The ability to take off and land and uh, airlines will have what are called slots, which are the ability to, you know, to land and take off. You know, one, you know, you have a, a, you know, two slots for takeoff and a landing. Uh, And uh, generally these are basically gifted to the airlines uh, by a government body, by the airport authority, um, depending on the jurisdiction. And uh, as a general matter, they want them to be uh, used. And they they keep out competition, the airports are are, are busy. There's only so many flights that can be supported at a given time. And so these are assigned to an airline and if they're not using them, they then lose that slot uh, and will not be able to use it in the future. It might be given to a different airline. And so the airline wants to maintain the ability to fly in the future, but also to keep out a competitor uh, that might fly against them uh, in the future. Uh, These slots can have tremendous value at a valuable airport to fly to where there's, you know, where slots are generally all being uh, used and are in limited supply and, you know, more airlines want them than have the ability to, uh, than there are supply Uh, like London Heathrow. uh, Slots can be sold for tens of millions of dollars. Uh, And so these are valuable assets uh, independent of the future flight that they might support. And so the last thing an airline wants to do is to, to lose it. Now, during the pandemic, uh, governments generally suspended the rules around having to use uh, a slot in order to keep it because there were going to be fewer flights and they didn't want to simply have planes flying around for no particular reason, um, on which. You know, there's a certain logic in that, but at the same time, uh, you sort of do want other airlines that might be uh, willing to fly to provide that service to passengers and, um, and, and they're kept out. Now, there were also, in some cases, provisions to allow temporary uh, access to an airport, uh, the lack of these slots notwithstanding, uh, during the pandemic. But as the uh, authorities return to pre-pandemic rules that require uh, use it or lose it on the slots. Uh, airlines will, uh, use them even when they don't have the, uh, rec- the, 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 passengers, the demand, uh, and they'll want to do it in the least costly way. So, you know, they're not going to you know, provision them for passengers and, and meet all of the, those requirements. They're not going to fly as far as they might, if they were flying passengers, they'll, you know, f- basically do the minimum, uh, you know, short distance flight to be taking off and using that slot and then turning back around. So if I get this right, the airlines
0: that are flying empty planes, they are afraid that right now they might not have the passenger number. So if they scale back and lose the slot and then come back later, somebody else will have taken it with more liquidity to keep keep like empty flights going. So they're they're basically afraid of losing the 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 lines basically not not being able to fly afterwards. Is that is that the big problem for airlines?
2: Yeah, right. They're afraid that somebody else will get the slot, and that means both an inability for them to fly in the future to the airport, but also uh, a competitor who is flying. So that's, you know, more competition. So the slot has the effect of it, it's it's the exclusive right to operate out of the airport or, you know, or, or a limited number of flights at a given time during a given hour. And, you know, the airlines, you know, both want to be able to use it and not to be competed against.
0: Right, so the the airlines have, have said publicly that this is, uh these these prizes That's not something that they've created. This is something that the government has created through rules in Europe that 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 have not been very charitable to them during the pandemic. Um, do, do you do you share that analysis? And uh, do you have any idea how we could do this differently to to avoid planes going empty?
2: Well, it, it's certainly the case that we're in a bizarre world where the rules of the game. Um, Encourage or you know virtually you know pressure an airline to uh, fly flights for no passengers. It is a you know waste of resources, uh, you know potentially negative you know negative externalities. Uh, that's certainly not a state of affairs that anybody you know should want to see. It's not anything new. Um, you know, it's something that we've seen for years, where an airline didn't have opportunities, as I mentioned, London Heathrow to fly uh, profitably there, but the slot itself is worth so much that they wouldn't want to give it up. And so, you know, and, and so they've been doing this for you know, for ages. It's not a new problem. But, but certainly it is a bizarre situation where the government has granted to incumbent airlines, the exclusive right to fly, uh, excluding competitors who may want to uh, operate during that time. Uh, it is a massive subsidy to incumbent airlines. As I say, at Heathrow, a pair of slots can be worth tens of millions of dollars each. Right, and so naturally they want to defend that, but uh, it, it seems to me that you know that creating anti-competitive situations, granting property rights to you know, to private enterprise it, that also have the unintended effect of uh, flying around planes for no reason, um, is not a good uh, mechanism to allocate. Uh, The scarce resource of there being a limited number of uh, ability to take off and land during a given hour at a given airport. And so there are any number of better ways. So we don't see reform in how slots are allocated to a large degree because of the entrenched interests, right? Who lobbies to keep the system in place? It's the incumbent airlines who would lobby for something different. Um, You know, certainly uh, passengers are largely oblivious to it. They have no reason to be aware of it. Um, Smaller airlines who want access uh, will, you know, occasionally make some noise, but as as a general rule, the industry is in lockstep uh through their trade you know, their international trade association i had to you know to advocate for this current system but you know, a couple of alternatives first of all um, you know the, if you just wanted to address the question of uh, should the government be granting in perpetuity generally for free uh, these assets to individual airlines uh, you could instead offer you know, fixed duration uh, leases of the slots that there's bidding for Right, so that the government actually gets something in exchange for uh, the resource and doesn't lock it in permanently with a given airline. You might have 10-year terms on these leases, and you, know, you wouldn't have to have these uh, use it or lose it rules. You could say that you know, other airlines could you know, borrow the slots effectively during that period um, if they weren't being used, but the 10-year lease wouldn't be rescinded to avoid having the, uh, the um, uh, problem of ghost flights. Uh, but a solution that I actually prefer to that is to forget the whole slot property right system altogether that entails locking up takeoffs and landings for 10 years or in perpetuity, and simply do congestion pricing. So if you had uh, a, a certain amount of throughput at an airport in a given hour, uh, you would charge to take off and land during that hour at a level that um, equilibrates uh, demand and supply of the resource. So an airline will pay more at the times of day that it is uh, highly desirable to take off. And they would pay less when there's less congestion. And what that would do is the airline is only going to be willing to take off and land when it is uh, de- desirable for enough passengers to fly at a fair that is going to support it. So you know. Five o'clock on a Thursday, you're going to see a lot more of the, you know, long haul business traffic that, uh, with larger aircraft that are more fuel efficient, uh, carrying more passengers, greater distances, because that'll cover the much higher cost associated with the desire for everyone to fly at that time. And, you know, off peak. Uh, when the airport isn't as busy, you'll have lower charges that accommodate, um, you know, smaller planes and shorter distances and, and, leisure fares for passengers who are, uh, more, uh, flexible in when they would travel.
0: Right. It's um, you would think that uh, airports would have already thought of alternative systems. Do, do you think that, that uh, the fa- the effect that in some European countries the, uh, the 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 governments are very often involved in owning and, and running the airports is, can that have a could that, can that be a problem towards innovating and and making it more efficient how to how to run the slots.
2: Well, I can tell you that, you know, gosh, air, airports are less frequently government-owned in Europe than they are here in the States, and we have all sorts of uh, of, of of strange results as a result. Uh, you have you know, effectively regulatory capture here, I believe, on the part of uh, airlines. Uh, I can't speak to the specific reasons that uh, Europe has rejected this, but in the U.S. it has been certainly discussed uh, with regulators who have, you know, many of whom have favored the idea, uh, and incumbent airlines do not, and there's not been you know, been any progress in this regard. Uh, it seems you know, clear that simply giving the resource in perpetuity to an airline is the least optimal solution, um, uh, but it is the current one that is backed by industry, uh, that you know, reforms Ought to be possible, and that you know, it's those incumbent players that are, that are the um, that are the impediment. Um, but uh, the the specific reason why uh, or the specifics of conversations that may have occurred in Europe are uh, beyond my expertise. I'm much more familiar uh, in the U.S. context. So um, on this podcast, we talk a
0: lot about competition. Um, and so when you talk about competition, it's all about market entry cost. This extrapolates a bit from this conversation, but I'm still interested in your view. The question is basically, what does it even take for to have competition on, 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 on in, in the aviation sector? What does it take to create an airline and, and you know, the budget re- required for that? And if, if purchasing a slot is already this expensive, I can imagine that it's, a, it's not a very flexible marketplace. Like coming up with a new airline, you need... To, the capital is just incredible. Is, is is that is that part of the reason why do, don't we have like more small airlines that just go to, to certain destinations than maybe create alliances between small airlines? Why is that Why is that not as much of a thing as it as it is in other industries?
2: Well, so this is a very big question about all of the barriers to entry. Now let's take as a given that any new entrant is going to have to satisfy uh, safety requirements. Uh, and that these are, you know, these are certainly heavily regulated, and um, uh, you know, one of the interesting things is that um, none of the uh, really, you know, what we haven't seen in the toughest times that airlines have faced uh, is any cutback in terms of safety, and that's not just true in the uh, pandemic. Uh, it was also true during the uh, Great Recession. It was true uh, during the uh, Gulf War twenty years ago. Um, so, you know, our, our safety systems are, are very good, assuming that an airline is able to, uh, to pass muster in that regard. Uh, I, I do think we want to have more of them. Now, there are, le- there are numerous barriers to entry. Often we might focus on uh, restrictions on foreign ownership of airlines that preclude, you know, say, an experienced... Uh, expert player in the airline industry from coming into a market uh, and disrupting it, and that is uh, true and uh, and a and a problem that you know that there's a tremendous nationalism here and, and protection of incumbent uh, airlines that that is a problem. But even if you were to get rid of that, so then you have the issue of uh, slots that are owned by incumbent players. You also have. Uh, long-term leases on gates at airports that make it difficult. So here in the U.S., slot controls are uh, fairly limited. We only have them uh, directly now at, at New York's JFK, LaGuardia, and Washington National Airport. Uh, but other large, uh, crowded, busy airports have limitations on uh, b- because of long-term leases of gates that make it difficult for a new carrier to come in uh, and even get the ticket counter space, let alone the gate. Uh, and then there are also issues of inefficient air traffic control, which we should be able to increase the throughput that allow more planes uh, to operate with less spatial separation than they have uh, now. Uh, you know, here in the US, again, we have you know, a fairly inefficient air traffic control that is not just regulated by, but operated by the government. Uh, in contrast, say, just to our north, we're NAV Canada. Uh, you know, or you know, Nets in the UK uh, are you know uh, privately run systems that uh, are more efficient than we have in the U.S. Uh, but the the, the point and, and, and also lower cost overall. Um, but these drive costs. They keep out. Uh, they they keep out competitors. So there are any, numerous barriers, and then um, you know tremendous subsidies. Uh, I mentioned that the slots themselves are a subsidy, but pouring billions of dollars into incumbent airlines. Uh, makes or props up those airlines. Uh, allows them to continue to operate inefficiently uh, in ways that make it difficult for a new entrant to uh, to compete with potentially you know, new models serving different passengers in different ways, uh, sometimes with potentially better experiences or more streamlined experiences. And certainly there are you know, ultra-low-cost carriers, your Ryanairs and your EasyJets, but these have largely been relegated to uh, you know secondary airports in many markets uh, in large measure because they're, you know, Blocked from uh, from takeoffs and landings at the closer-in airports by the incumbent players uh, and you know who had who've been gifted these slots and so they it you have to go out of your way and inconvenience yourselves in many cases to be able to uh, to access the flights that they offer which continues to prop up the fares that the uh, incumbent carriers are able to charge. And that concludes this week's episode
0: of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Gary Leff on Twitter at Gary Leff and check out View From The Wing on viewfromthewing.com. Also, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well on Twitter at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday.
1: You have-